Let me make sure I got all the devices turned on. And we're going to hold off a second on anything up there for just a minute. Here we go. Stand with me, please. Let's invite the Lord into our presence. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, you who sanctifies us with your commandments and anoints us with your presence in our lives. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity to come into your house. We're thankful for the opportunity to fellowship, to join together in worship and praise. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who has provided for us in such a way where we can read for ourselves and hear for ourselves your words, what you have spoken. Help us, Lord, as we go through that effort this morning to embrace your word, cause it to become a part of us, part of who we are, and help us, Lord, to perhaps perceive you in a way we've not seen you before. I ask, Lord, as we begin this time together that you might consecrate our thoughts, consecrate our hearts, consecrate our actions, and consecrate our walk that we might stay on the path of righteousness which you have laid out before each of us. Lead us, Lord. Guide us and direct us as we seek to stay faithful to the paths that you have given us. And now, Lord, as we come into this time of study, we invite you into our presence, and it is our heart's desire that all that is said, all that is done in this place at this time might be found pleasing in your sight. This we lift up in the strong and mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, amen. You may be seated. All right, well, good morning, everybody. I think uh, I want to start by saying I find it uh, providential that I've been invited to speak this morning because it, as it correlates with the new school year, a lot of our youth are gone, some are here, a lot of our people are teachers, and others are involved in other aspects of, of school. I think it's also uh, providential to note that Gordon is heavily into a sermon series on the parables of Jesus, Yeshua, as they're set forth in the Gospels. And because of that, I thought it might be of value for us to examine a little bit about what the educational system was of ancient Israel. God saw fit to present our Messiah in that context. And as with everything biblical, there's much to be gained to try to understand Scripture within its context, put ourselves into that story instead of extrapolating from that story into ours. If we disregard that context, it's often overlooked that parables is a classic rabbinic teaching device. It's extensive throughout ancient literature, and there were many parables that were told not only by Jesus in the ancient world, it was not uncommon for a parable to begin with these words. There was a rabbi. And in that context, if people heard those words spoken, the audience knew that they were about to receive a parable, and therefore they were about to receive a teaching on biblical context. 
biblical truth. Jesus is not the only person in ancient history that taught with parables, but he is unilaterally considered the best. Every credible list of great rabbis of the first century include Jesus. Some have him, Jewish resources, have him at the top of the list in terms of being a great teacher. He's on up there with the Gamaliels, the Shammai's, and the Hillel's of his day. Jesus was called a teacher. Throughout scripture, we see that term used, that he is called a teacher. But it's important for us to recognize that there are actually three related terms that are translated into that word teacher out of Hebrew. The first is rav. Rav simply means teacher, lowercase t. The second term is one that we're most familiar with, ravi or rabbi, which means my teacher. And the third category, which is very, very rarely used, is rabboni. And rabboni means my great teacher. Jesus is the only person in all of Scripture that is referred to by the term rabboni. Given that he is a teacher, Jesus was a teacher, it would strike me as meaningful to try to examine the ancient educational system that evolved by the time of Jesus' early earthly ministry. In other words, we're about to go to school. Okay? Now, the text we're going to read, I guess I'm going to have to turn around and read it from here because I can't read that one. Let's stand. <laughs> That's way too far away. I should have brought binoculars with me. Let's stand and uh, recite these words. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his, and his answers. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, let's go ahead and start with the slides. Ben, we're probably going to have to work with this. Um, I'm going to have to turn around and look this way. I'm ready when you are. Um, if I can find my no There we go. All right. I'm going to try to go through this as rapidly as I can. We are about to cover about a thousand years of world history in a short, and I'm going to take way less than a thousand years to do it, but we're going to try to cover it. We, we really, in order to understand why and how the education system existed as it did in Jesus' day, how did that happen? So here we go. Fasten your seatbelts because this is going to be very quick. 1000 B.C. to 970 B.C., David is king. David dies. He's succeeded by his son Solomon from 970 B.C. to 930 B.C. Next slide. After, the, uh, after Solomon dies, the kingdom divides into two. It divides into the northern kingdom, which became known as Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah. 
they had significant disagreements. The easiest way for us to try to get our arms around this is think about our own history. Think about if we lived in the early 1800s in the United States, and you know that the issues were different, but, but you know that there was a huge amount of tension between the North and the South. Same thing existed there. Fast forward two and a half centuries. There is a group of people known as the Assyrians who want to become the ranking world power. They're very successful. They're very brutal. And they know that in order to become the ranking world power, you've got to control the eastern territories in the north. Then you have to come and, and move west and then come south and go into Egypt. In order to control the world, you've got to control all those locations. In order to go from the northern territories into Egypt, you've got one little bitty strip of land that's about 90 or 100 and something miles long and about that wide. And it's the nation of Israel, and it's right where God plopped his people down to and told them, welcome home. That is unquestionably the most fought-over piece of geography on the face of the earth in history. He puts his people there. The, Babylon, the, the Assyrians were very successful in, in the northern territories. They came around into the upper section of Israel, and they were able to defeat the northern territories, and they were stopped before they could get to Judah. They had a brutal form of warfare. When they captured a country, a people, they would take all the people of any means, move them from there into another territory where they did not know the language, did not know the custom, did not know the geography, did not know the economy, knew nothing about it, and plop them there and still basically keep them under some form of captivity. Then they would do the same with people from other territories that they, territories that they conquered and move them into that. This is where the group of people that we know as the Samaritans developed. They moved in others that commingled with the poorest of the poor of Israel that were left, and that group became known as the Samaritans. Go forward about another century and a half, the Assyrians are defeated, and they're replaced by a group of people known as the Babylonians. The Babylonians come in and basically are successful in defeating, taking over the Assyrian territory, but also defeating Judah, the lower section of Israel. Their method was similar, but much gentler than what the Assyrians did. They still would take people, cart them off, have them leave the territory that they were in, but they kept them intact. And they asked, they, they, they sought for people that as they conquered them, they wanted to become, them to become loyal subjects of the Babylonian Empire. So instead of enslaving them, they encouraged them to do what they could to, to fit in well with the society that they were in. Israel, the Judeans out of the territory of Judah, the, the temple was conquered. They were brought into the city of Babylon itself. Next slide. This was a real curiosity for the Judeans because for the most part you had two categories of people that lived in Judah. One was basically farmers and shepherds. 
The other group was the priesthood. You take those two groups and you move them into a place like Babylon and they're pretty much a fish out of water. Farmers and shepherds, like from a small community around here, move into a major, major world power headquarters and plop down and told basically, learn how to live here. It's kind of like if we took somebody from one of our smaller communities around here and picked them up and took them over to Taipei, China, one of the largest cities in the world, and plopped them down and just told them, now you need to learn how to exist here. Very, very similar. The priesthood was also significantly influenced because the priesthood could not function without a temple. Since the temple has been destroyed, there's no, no purpose for the priesthood to exist in a place like Babylon. So then they begin to get to the point where we have to learn how to adopt, adapt. Next slide. They got to the point where they began asking themselves the hard questions. The Jews, as they went into, into Babylon, they began to ask themselves things like, why did God take our country away? Why would God let this happen? And they answered it, because we were disobedient. And then they asked the next question, how, how were we disobedient? And they answer it, because we broke Torah. God gave us all the commands and we broke Torah. And then they asked the next question, how can we get our country back? And they answer it, by being obedient. And how can we be obedient? By never ever, ever breaking Torah. And the system began to develop a building fences around Torah. Fences and fences and fences. And you may break through a fence or two or three fences. But if we're very careful, we won't break, through Tor we won't break Torah. And if we don't break Torah, God will give us our country back. In other words, we have to change. Next slide. They knew that they had to transition. Priests served no function, so they began to go to the general um, pu public, and they began to seek out individuals that seemed to have a very um, elevated ability to read, study, interpret, and teach Scripture. This is where the rabbinic system of teaching began during the Babylonian captivity. They knew we have no temple anymore. So we must find ways that we can assemble, not to replace the temple, but because we don't have a temple, we have to come up with a system where we can meet together. This is where the system of synagogue worship began. We often think of synagogue being church. That's not really a good translation for the word synagogue. Synagogue means the literal translation of the word is assembly. It was a place where the people would assemble, where the people would uh, learn, study, teach, and on the Sabbath they would meet there, but not to replace the temple, but only because it was the only place that they had left. They went from a system of strict, strict religious adherence into one where they studied 
and learned and did everything they could to make sure that rather than being religious, they were obedient. Everything that they did was to try to help them to be obedient. God had told them, after a period of time, I will bring you back. And where you are, learn, adapt, do what you need to do to survive. Next slide. Okay, now we go forward a little bit more, a little further in history. The Babylonians are defeated by a general by the name of Cyrus the Persian. Gordon has spoken about him in some of the, uh, uh, the, the, the series he did before he started the, the parables. Cyrus was considered a very, very good king. Um, he was a phenomenal military leader, but he had a different attitude about the right way to uh, to lead the people that he became king over. He made it possible. He was the one who gave the edict that said that anybody that wants to go back to their home country, you can do it. They went back. The Jews went back tremendously back into Jerusalem from Babylon. <coughs> Cyrus ultimately gets defe <coughs> defeated. And a few, a few um, I don't know, 100 years later, we come up with Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great develops the largest world empire the world had ever known up to that point in time. He gets assassinated. His kingdom is separated into five pieces, at the, which he gives to his five leading generals. <coughs> and the two that are relevant to the story of Israel in the north are the Seleucids, and in the south, the Ptolemies. The Seleucids pretty much covered what would be modern-day Turkey, and in the south, the, the, the Ptolemies uh, would be in the territory of Egypt. Both wanted to compete, or did compete tremendously, to control Israel. Whoever controlled Israel literally controlled the world, because you could control entrance and egress from one of those to the other. The, the, the Seleucids win. They're brutal. They try to force all the people that are in uh, Israel to convert to pagan, paganism. If you didn't do it, they executed you brutally. There is the account in, uh, in the books of Maccabees that talks about, gives the history of that, um, that encounter. And over time, about 150 years before Jesus, there is a war between the Maccabees and the Seleucids. The Maccabees win. They defeat, they drive out the Seleucids, and for the first time, in far back as anyone can remember, they become, and they become an independent country again. The word goes out to the Jews of the diaspora, come on back, the weather's fine, we've got our country back again, and they did. They came back by the hundreds and thousands. When they came back, they could not go to Judea, where the temple is because the Judeans live there. They would not go to the central territory because the Samaritans lived there. And the only place that was left for them to go was Galilee, the northern territory. This was where the zealot movement began in Galilee because they were, they were determined, no matter what happens, no matter what we have to do, we will die 
before we let our country be taken back again. And this is the Israel in which Jesus is brought into. Next slide. Now, the education system that grew alongside of all this was very, very structured. We think of synagogue as a place of worship. Generally, in our culture, that's probably more, is very, very true. But in that culture, synagogue was not a place of worship. The only place you worship God is at the temple. Three times a year, you would go to the temple to worship. For the rest of the year, the synagogue was a place of meeting. It was a place of Sunday, uh, of uh, Sabbath reflection, but it was not the place where you go to worship. The primary function of the synagogue was a place of study. They had developed it into a very formal program. Next slide. There were three levels of, three levels of, of, um, of study in synagogue. The first level was called Beth Sefer. Beit or Beth or Beit means house. Sefer means book. This is basically the equivalent of elementary school. Students from, or, or children from the age of 5 to 12 would be in that, uh, in, in, in Beth's affair. Keep going. The, the, the textbook that they used to study was Torah. Nothing else, just Torah. They would study Torah. Keep going. And the goal was to memorize as much of Torah as you possibly could. Commit it to memory. If a boy did it, by the time he was 12 years old, if a boy memorized it, then it was, he could take what was called his first Passover. He would be permitted to lay his hands on the lamb, do the sacrificial ritual for Passover. If he couldn't do it, he had to wait till he was 20 years old. Next slide. The second level... If for those who progressed from that, the boys only who progressed from that level, maybe one to three out of a hundred would progress to the next level. And at that level, girls did not participate anymore. Girls in that culture went home and learned how to be mamas and wives. And the boys went on and studied. Keep going. This was only a three-year period from ages 12 to, thir- to 15. Next slide. They also learned the family trade because it was an absolute certainty next to nobody was going to graduate from this level. So you would have to have some sort of a, um, uh, a fallback plan to go to. Next slide. And the, Wait a minute, not yet. You are on the next slide. The goal on this was to learn the rest of the Hebrew Bible, Tanakh, the um, Torah, the prophets, and the sacred writings. If you could memorize that, then you went to the next level. Next slide. Memorize as much of this as possible. Go on to the next one. Okay. If you made it through that level, then you went to the level that's called Beit Midrash. That is the house of study. That is the Ph.D., multiple Ph.D. level for anything that you can think of in our culture. And only about one out of every thousand got into this. And next to none got out. Second slide. This is for ages 15 to 30. It's 15 years of schooling. How old was Jesus when he began his ministry? 
30 years old. He followed the convention of what age he would be when he began to become a rabbi. If you made it, keep going, to what you would study, and this is all the great interpretations that began during the Babylonian captivity, the interpretations of the great rabbis, you would study what they, what they studied and, and look at what their interpretations went, how they interpreted what was in Torah, how they came up with the ideas of what kinds of fences to build around Torah, how to do it, and on and on and on and on and on. It's a tremendous amount of study. And the next slide. And the goal was to become what was referred to as a Talmud. Talmud means disciple. And if you made it all the way through that, then you became a full-fledged disciple of one of those rabbis. The term Talmud, the plural Talmudim, has an objective. And that objective is to do everything you can, have a burning passion to become just exactly like your rabbi. Because if I'm like my rabbi, and my rabbi is like his rabbi, and his is like his, and on and on and on, back through time, who are you going to be just like? Nice try. Moses. Some people respond to this and say, like God. Nobody's going to be like God. The best you could hope to be is like the one that God called a friend and sat down and talked to face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So if we are faithful and we do our part and do it right, then we, we, we sustain and we preserve all the teaching that God has given us. Next slide. If you graduate, if you make it to this level, then you have the privilege of going out and calling your own disciples, your own tell me deem. And if you go through the ancient literature, this is not anything that was um, uh, exclusive to just Jesus. But if you go through the ancient literature, there was a formal way of inviting someone to become a Talmud. And it was two simple words. Follow me. If a rabbi spoke those words to a potential individual, then basically what he's saying is, I've been watching you. I've been paying attention to you. And I think you've got what it takes to make it to that level. Follow me. Jesus uses that exact same formula when he calls his disciples. Jesus is behaving like a master rabbi. The one thing that's different about Jesus is who he called. He didn't call the ones that were headed for Harvard. He called the ones that had calluses on their hands. Different kind of rabbi in terms of the people that he called. Next slide. Now, I want to take you to a couple of uh, archaeological sites in Israel. This is the temple complex, I'm sorry, the synagogue complex that exists in um, Capernaum right, right now. I took this picture in 2010, and there's probably been, well, there's certainly been more development in terms of restoring the, the uh, facility. But what you're looking at is the entire temple or, or uh, synagogue building that was in Jesus' day. The one that was in Jesus' day would have been made out of that basalt stone, the dark stone you see at the bottom. 
an earthquake hit around 700 AD and it was rebuilt exactly on top of the original um, floor plan. So we know we're looking at an exact replica with a different kind of stone of where that, that, uh, that synagogue was. Now, remember, a synagogue is not a place of worship. It's a place of study. It's also a place of assembly. This synagogue is the third most significant synagogue in ancient Israel. The great Rabbi Hillel taught in this synagogue. And Jesus almost certainly heard him speak. When Jesus was young, Hillel was teaching in this synagogue. Now, if you look at this building, the left side of this building is the meeting hall. The right side of this building is the school. Show me the next slide. That is the portion that is the school. If you look at the inside of the building, about a third of the total is a school. Now, let me show you another couple exhibits by comparison to show you how this stacks up against what you normally see in Israel. Next slide. This is a place called Gamla. This is the synagogue that existed in Gamla. This area was not destroyed by an earthquake, so we know that we are looking at the exact floor plan as it existed in Jesus' day. This is the first synagogue that was discovered archaeologically in Israel, 1968, that is certain to have been in existence in Jesus' day. If it was in existence in Jesus' day, we know something. That floor that we were allowed to walk on is the same floor that Jesus walked on. Because we're told in the Gospels that he visited every synagogue in Galilee. This is in Galilee, and it is a synagogue that existed in Jesus' day. Gamla is a wide spot in the road. It's a very, very small town. It is the home of the zealot movement, and not much in the way of academic expertise existed in this city. By comparison to the last one we looked at, let me see the next slide. This is the school. It's not a whole lot bigger than a utility room. By comparison, just about this whole building is about the size of the school in Capernaum. So that's the difference between the two. Now, here's what we, all that is to get us back into the text. Here's what we need to understand. Jesus grew up in a town called Nazareth. He did not grow up in Capernaum. He did not grow up in Jerusalem. He grew up in a little town called Nazareth. He was a carpenter. He was actually a, a, a stone worker instead of a woodworker. The word that's translated carpenter is tecton, which, where we get the word tectonic plates. There are no trees in Israel. If you're a carpenter, you work with stone. He was a stonemason. His family was stonemason. The whole village of Nazareth is stonemasons. So Jesus grew up in a village up until he went into his earthly ministry that was a lot like one of these two synagogues we just looked at. But it's not 
the one in Capernaum. Jesus grew up and was, had access to an educational system that is very similar to what would have happened here. Not like what would happen in Capernaum. If we look at some of the other scripture, other scriptures, there is an account where Jesus returns to his hometown. When he returns to his hometowns, that he speaks, and we're told that the crowds are amazed by what he has to say, and they are completely shocked. And they ask this question. Now, this is the kind of question we just kind of glance over, but if you put it into this context, it has a whole new, different dimension to it. Where did he, who we grew up with, we know him, some of us are related to him, we know he worked with Stone, we know he worked with his father, we know he didn't leave here, Where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get this wisdom? He did not study under one of the great rabbis. So where did he get this wisdom? Now, if we go back to the original text that we looked at, I don't think you're going to have a, video, a, a, a slide of this. Well, yeah, we do. Okay, keep going. That might be it. Ah, back up. Y'all didn't see that. Y'all didn't see that. If we go back to the original text that we looked at, there are two verses in front of the words we read. Now you can give me the next slide. Every year... His parents would go up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And the text tells us very, very clearly when he was 12 years old, he went up to the feast with them. What did you hear? He's not even old enough to be out of Beth's affair. But the the leaders in the temple are listening to him in shock at what they hear. He was so brilliant. Now, I guess we could do a Gordon thing. That's our text. (laughs) And now it's time to put that in perspective. I got to tell you a quick story. I'm probably going to get jumped on for telling this story, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Quite a while back, when we had only been attending here a few months, um, a Monday morning, we're, Susan and I are in the kitchen, and I'm eating my breakfast, and she says, I'm going to pull a Gordon on you. And I said, okay, I think I'm ready. She said, now it's time for us to ask the most important question we ask every day around here. What do you want for dinner? And I was pretty quick on this one. And I told her, Susan, what difference does that make to me in my life right now? I haven't even finished my breakfast yet. And she's pretty quick, too. And she came back, well, that's a good question. Let's see if we can answer it. If you don't tell me what you want, you're not getting anything. 
I have no idea what I ate for dinner that day, but I do know I spent most of that day down in the shop. <laughs> I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid. Now, I say all that to say this. We have several members in our fellowship that are involved in education. We have teachers. We have coaches. We have other members that are involved in other kinds of activities in the school systems. And we have a lot of students. Our children are unfortunately going to necessarily be thrust into a situation that is not generally inclined to subscribe to the value systems we learn here. I would like to suggest to you that they need prayer. We need to lift up our young people and those who instruct our young people before the Lord because this is the only place where they are going to receive godly truth. Knowledge and truth are two different things. They will receive knowledge, but they will not receive truth. There is a truck out there that has coffee on it that's not nearly as good as I'm sure Tyler makes but it's got coffee and donuts on it and it's kind of a kickoff for the ministry that we are beginning called every member in ministry I think I said that right every member in ministry I would like to suggest to you that everyone in this room we are all already involved in ministry and that ministry is to see to it that the next generation of young people coming up have a right and proper awareness of the God that we serve let's pray Lord we thank you so much for the opportunity to come into your house and to study your word we thank you, Lord, that you have provided for us in such a way that we can understand the deeper truths of your word, that we can embrace it and help us, Lord, as we seek to share what we have learned, what we know about you, not only with the outside world, but even more importantly, within our own families. Help us, Lord, to do that properly. Help us, Lord, to draw attention to you, a holy, holy Holy God, we thank you, Lord, for your provision. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.